This is episode 461 of the Leaving Laodicea broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. Today we'll look at the hope we have of God pouring out His Spirit maybe just one more time in such a way that we would experience as a nation and as a church a fifth great awakening, much like the first and second great awakening that changed our nation for the better. And we will discover from 2 Chronicles 7.14 some of the if requirements necessary on our part to have God do his part to forgive our national sin and heal our land. And let's face it, if any nation needed healing right now, it's ours. So join with me today as we learn how to leave Laodicea behind. I am going to paint with a broad brush in the very beginning of this message. If this doesn't apply to you, my apologies. It does apply to me. The, uh, the church is rather lukewarm. I know that. I know that in, compared to what I see in the gospel accounts, compared to what I see going on in other countries, compared to what I see from spiritual heroes and books we read and stuff of that nature, I myself am somewhat lukewarm because I love this world. I love the things in the world. We have built a certain standard of living, and none of us wants to give that up. I mean, does anybody want to give that up? Nobody wants to take a job that pays less. Nobody wants to move to a smaller house or drive a um, not-so-nice car. Nobody wants to do that because this is just the American dream we are. So there's no need to spend a lot of time talking about that because we all know And if I was candidly blunt with you, I would say that pretty much the church in the West, most believers are the problem because we have divided loyalties and we've become comfortable in the way in which we live. And so what we end up doing is we hear messages about, you know, committing yourself to the Lord and we hear messages about having a George Mueller kind of faith or being a faith prepper or making a stand no matter what and taking upon yourself the light and darkness motif so the darkness wants to stamp out and persecute that, or to make a commitment to live godly in Christ, knowing that all who desire to do that will suffer persecution. And we're all pumped up and excited like at a promise keepers rally or revival or a football game. And then we walk outside and it's gone. It's gone because the world just beats us down. We got things to do. We got kids to raise. We got jobs to, to worry about. We've got this coronavirus thing, which is kind of beyond understanding. We've got the racial unrest going on, and we find all this stuff happening right now politically, and, and we find ourselves just too overwhelmed with the world to stay focused on our commitment to Him. And the Bible has clear words to speak about those people who desire not to love the world, but to be a friend of the world. Do you remember what it said? That when we do that, we make ourselves, responsibility is on us, an enemy of God. And so when we assume things are always going to be the same and there's nothing we can do about it, we're just going to kind of rock on, it just makes the matters worse. Until you take a step back and you look and see what God is doing elsewhere. I mean, we have churches on every street corner. We have whole networks that are devoted just to Christian music. If you go on Amazon or Spotify or or something of that nature, you can pull up genres of music. 
and there's classic rock, and there's country, and there's, and there's a whole section for Christian music, contemporary Christian music, and then gospel music, and then worship music. I mean, we've got it made compared to other countries, and yet the Holy Spirit is moving over there in profound ways. A little research I did found that 82,000 people become Christians every single day, every single day in our nation. That may seem like a lot, and it is, but this is a worldwide phenomenon. For example, 32,000 will become his followers in Africa, 25,000 in Asia, 17,000 in Latin America, and around six in both the North America, not just the United States, but six in Europe. I've got this here. In Europe, mass population here, and all of North America. 30-something thousand over here, 17, 18,000 over here, and from all of these Christianized nations, Europe and the, uh, and the United States, around 6,000 people come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why is that? Why, why is that happening? And I'll be candidly blunt with you. It's because most people in the West, and I'm including Europe also, take their faith in Christ as a hobby and not a life commitment a hobby. It's something that we add to our busy lives. One of the things we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks, like seek first the kingdom of God, and that's not first in a series of things that are important to you. Well, what are your, what are your important things in your life, Steve? Oh, well, well, let me see my God and my family and my job and, and you know, my friends and me, and you know, we kind of put it in that order, although sometimes it's really our job first and then us second, and you know how that goes. And so therefore, the goal in life is to take all these things that are important to us and place God first. No, that's not what the Bible teaches. There is nothing else but God. Nothing else. Everything else is just trappings. We talked about a couple weeks ago. Every good thing in your life, if it doesn't bring about producing fruit, which is the only thing we are created for, is something that gets pruned because it becomes an idol. My kids, as good as my kids are, if they're more important than Christ is, then that becomes an idol. My husband, my wife, my spouse, my family, my health, who I am, if, if they become more important than Christ, they become an idol. And so in the West, we have all these idols. But in Africa, sometimes in Asia, under great persecution, they have nothing but him. Nothing but him, and they hold on to him like he's meant to be that way. And listen, in North America, it, all, it, it wasn't always that way. There were certain things known as revivals. There were things as known as awakenings or the great awakening that took place. And what happens is when a church is shocked out of its apathy or its lukewarmness, this is something that the theologians and historians call an awakening. And a spiritual awakening is defined as a socially transforming spiritual movement. There is a socially transforming spiritual movement taking place in our nation right now for the dark side. Do you realize that? All this stuff that's going on, it's not, it's not about racism or immigration or abortion. Those are just side issues. It's a spiritual battle out there, and they are winning hands down. They have had a demonic, spiritual, transforming social movement that's taking place that brings people out into the streets and 
I mean, just get on Facebook and watch how some of your friends have lost their brain. I mean, it's, it's amazing what's going on right now. But on a spiritual side, on a Christian side, when a spiritual awakening takes place in the church, it transforms society. It transforms families. It makes husbands better husbands, wives better wives, kids better kids. It makes businesses honor God. Back during the the first and second and third grade awakening, bars would close down. And and, I mean, it was a there was a desire community wise to serve the Lord. But before a spiritual awakening take place, takes place, which involves a lot of people, there has to begin a revival in individual people. And when a revival takes place, it's a spiritual rebirth, which transforms not a community or not a nation, but a person or a family or a small community, maybe a church, into the likeness of Christ, living first century Christianity. It's light in darkness. When that revival begins to spread from person to person and house to house and church to church and community to community, then by definition, as it gets larger and larger and larger, it becomes a movement. And the movement is called a great awakening. There have been several of those in our nation. There was the first great awakening back in 1734. You know, Jonathan Edwards, and you can read about that, and it was a, it was a life-changing awakening, and the, the crux of that was about three years long, but then the ripple effect of it lasted for decades. There was something known as the second great awakening that took place in 1792. You had the preaching of Whitfield and, and people of that nature. The third great awakening began right around the time of the Civil War. This is where Moody was involved, and, and people realized in our nation there was a cataclysmic event about to take place. And we had the Civil War coming, and nation against nation, and brothers and would be fighting against brothers. And I mean, it was the identity and the future of the republic was at stake. During that time, exactly what could be happening to us today. After that, you had what's known as a fourth awakening. It's not really called a great awakening by a lot of theologians because it wasn't necessarily worldwide. It was the Azusa Street revivals that took place where the Holy Spirit all of a sudden did become some sort of unnamed entity out there that nobody could get their hands on, but they understood that the Holy Spirit lived in us, and he was a person with a personality that needed to be embraced, and it's had a profound impact even in, on my life because of this awakening. Some consider what happened during the 60s and 70s the Jesus movement to be an awakening, not necessarily a great awakening, but, a, but an awakening too, and if you remember that, um, it was... It was amazing. It didn't happen so much in the Bible Belt, but out in California, I wish I could have lived my life over again and known about it. I'd have got on a bus and driven out there and, and, and just seen some of the stuff that were going on where, where people were, because of the, the Vietnam War, because of the unrest of the 60s, because of the racial the burning of the Chicago cities and all the, the assassinations that took place, the Kennedys and Martin Luther King and, and others, that there was this desire for something different with birth the Jesus movement, which birthed all of contemporary Christian music and a lot of the modern translations that we have today. But we as a people and as a nation are primed for this fifth spiritual awakening, which may be the last that our nation has. I mean, there's, a, there's an expectation that something's going on. There's an expectation that, that, 
the, the life in our nation may not exist as, as we know it for much longer. The, the things are changing. New generations are coming, and those new generations are now becoming head of these, these massive institutions such as Twitter and Facebook and, and Google and Amazon and, and stuff of that nature, which have a profound impact on all of us. And their views are different than our views, and their, their understanding of, of the future and what is right is different than ours. And we are becoming, as a church, pushed into the corner, and yet we're satisfied to do that because we really don't want to engage anything out there because it's difficult and it costs us something and it's just out of our comfort zone. Revival focuses on the rebirth of your personal relationship with Lord. And this is what, if you wanted to take a macro view of what the Lord's been communicating to me with sharing with you, this is what I've been trying to do. Laying the foundation for that, talking about faith and faith prepping, talking about abiding and surrendering and preparing ourselves spiritually for what's about to happen. Listen, when January of 2020 rolled around and we sat back and said, I wonder what's going to happen in this year. Anybody ever think it would be like this? And we haven't even gone half a year yet. That the whole nation gets shut down because of some virus we don't really understand. That our government inconsistently applies certain restriction requirements based on it appears political agendas. In other words, it's okay and I'll sanction the ability for 10,000 people to sweat and yell and scream and speak this close to each other during a demonstration. But you can't go to a funeral of a friend if more than 10 people show up. There's something wrong there, is there not? And there's this brewing discontent on both sides of this issue that's, that's boiling to a point of breaking. The next big move is going to be mail-in voting. And as soon as all that gets pushed, there's going to be fraud that takes place or accusations of fraud at the election. And if it's this bad in June, what's it going to be like in November, irrespective of what happens? Are you ready? Is your, is your faith ready to persevere during times like that? I shared with you last week, our Supreme Court voted five to four, John Roberts, of course, being the swing vote, five to four, that basically says the government has the right, not necessarily a state government or a local government, but a government, even health official, has a right to, to prevent the church from meeting together if they so desire by saying some sort of public health. The amendments... Bill of Rights, many of those things have been thrown out the window. So what's going to happen when that happens? So we defy that, then we all of a sudden become branded as some sort of renegade, that it's we that gets blamed for the spike in the coronavirus rather than the marches that are taking place all over the world because that's politically correct. It's coming. It's coming. And we're running out of time. We're running out of time to prepare. I wish that we could just take it baby step by baby step, which we've been doing over the last two years, but we can't. The battle is coming to us, and we can no longer erect our walls and get in our holy huddles and assume that if we do what we're going to do, that they'll leave us alone because they're not. They're not, and we have to be ready. When personal revival takes place by sheer numbers, if a personal revival took place with a wife in a home with four kids, it would not be long before that contagious, effectual, 
excitement about the Lord will either empower her husband to see it God's way or cause her husband to become an enemy of her. Her kids will all of a sudden be the, have a collateral blessing because of the mom's fired up relationship with Jesus in a family or they will become her enemies. I mean, a dividing line is drawn. Usually what happens is revival spread because people are looking for answers. They want to know what's going on. They want to know if life has any purpose. Are we just some sort of biological creatures? What, what is the purpose of this? And you and I have the answers. We've just become accustomed to only sharing those answers among ourselves. So how, how do we experience this personal revival and how does that grow into a great awakening, if that is God's will? And it's really simple. There are certain if-then promises that God has in Scripture. As a matter of fact, you should take some time and just look at those. There's a lot of them. Matter of fact, most of the profound Scriptures that we have, that we quote all the time, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, they're all if-then passages. The whole Romans road, when you get to the very end where you accept Christ, now if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ, and if you believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, then you shall be saved. It's an if-then process. It's an if-then promise. We have to do something in order for God to do something. In order for national forgiveness to take place, the Bible says that there has to be some if-then promises that are met. For you individually... Yes, God will immediately forgive your sins. God will restore a relationship with you. God will, God will turn you around. He'll turn you into something incredible by just asking. But on a nation, it's different. Because in a nation, you have some people that are saved and some people that are still flat wicked. It's not like on an individual basis, I have a desire to come to God and repent of my sins. For a nation, the whole nation doesn't do that. But a certain faction of the nation does, and a certain group of the nation committed to the Lord meet his if-then requirements, and God decides because of their faith and their commitment to collaterally bless the rest of the nation. Doesn't mean everybody gets saved, but it does mean that sometimes God's hand of judgment is forestalled. The whole story of Nineveh and Jonah is a classic picture of that. God doesn't expect everyone just those who belong to him to make this kind of commitment. And we find this if-then promise in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. Oh, yeah, I've heard that so much. I know exactly what it means, if I may be so bold as to say, that you're reading it out of context. Because if you look at the passage, here, since I'm just using this, the this single verse, I have the if capitalized. I want you to look in your Bible. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14 begins with a small case, if. Do you see that? Because verse 13 has a comma. It's one long sentence. And so what we're doing is just pulling a sentence out and proof texting it, and we're missing some of the stuff that it says. Here's what it says. If my people... And then he defines those people are called by my name. If my people will humble themselves, not be humbled, not be forced to be humbled, God not humbling them, but they will choose to humble themselves and pray and seek my face, not my hand, not my best life now, but my face, and turn from their wicked ways. 
Then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sins and heal their land. Note, I will forgive their sin. Singular. Not sins. Sin. I wonder what sin that is. It's the overriding sin. And I will heal their land. No land needs healing more than ours right now. Would you agree? And it's only going to get worse. Just think about it. For the last week, there have been continual riots and demonstrations, and yesterday was the big day of all the demonstrations. They even blocked the downtown intersection of the massive metropolitan area of Clover. You know what I mean? Seriously. Seriously. Um, I was driving from uh, Food Lion, and I saw this group getting together, and it looked like that... You know, it looked like they were having like a, you know, one of those festivals that they have in downtown Clark. I didn't know about the festival and, you know, and everybody was kind of gathering around. And so I went on past it. Justice drove past it about a half hour later and it wasn't a festival. They had all the signs out and they marched down into downtown Clover and blocked the streets. And okay, it's, it's the cool thing to do now. Our land needs healing. Doesn't matter what position you take on. It doesn't matter whether you think they're right or they're wrong or you align with their view or you don't align with your view, those are, those are extraneous issues. There's a discontent in the land that is now becoming violent to the point, I don't know if you read in the news this morning, but in California, a couple of deputy sheriffs were ambushed and killed. Uh, it's, it's, it's getting worse. Our land needs healing. God will forgive their sin, the righteous people, and he will heal the land, the, handmade, the land made up of righteous people and unrighteous people, if we meet certain requirements. So here's the context of this passage. I, I won't bother um, giving the whole history of this, but if you'll read chapters uh, 1 through 6, you'll find out that it talks about the preparation of the, of the temple. Solomon has been decreed to build this temple, and so he's building this temple, and, and it's all the events that are leading up to that. He asks for wisdom in 2 Chronicles chapter 1. Chapter 2, he begins making the preparations to build the temple. Chapter 3, he actually builds a temple. Chapter 4, he makes the furnishings for the temple. Chapter 5, he brings the Ark of the Covenant into the temple, and then God responds with this incredible way in chapter 5, verses 11 through 14. I do want you to read that. Chapter 5, the Ark of the Covenant is brought in. And it says, verse 11, As it came to pass, when the priests came out of the most holy place, for all the priests that were present had sanctified themselves without keeping to their divisions, and the Levites who were the singers, and it talks about all the singing going on. Verse 13 says, Indeed, it came to pass when the trumpeters and the singers were as one to make one sound to be heard praising and thanking the Lord. Think about, think about that. There's this group of singers that are singing to the top of their voices and are blowing trumpets and the music is playing and it's building up into this incredible crescendo and the focus and context of all of this is praising the Lord and thanking the Lord. And when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and cymbals and instruments and music and praised the Lord saying, for he is good and his mercy endures forever, that the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud, the Shekinah glory came down, and so that the priest could not continue ministering because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. Can you imagine experiencing something like that and then trying to think about the problems that you have? Well, things are really going tough at work. Who cares? 
We just met with God. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Who cares? We just met with God. Chapter 6, Solomon prays and he blesses the temple and then God responds to that prayer in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, the first couple of verses. I won't bother reading that. People offer sacrifices, verses 4 through 11. And then, like he did in the first chapter, God appears to Solomon a second time and gives him promises and warnings about the nation, the temple, and his own life. It was those warnings that I read to you this morning before we began our worship service. I will bless you unbelievably. I will make all the promises to you that I made to David. I will bless the nation. I will bless the people. I will do all of this if you obey me. If you do not obey me, I will destroy this temple. I will tear it down as an example to all the other nations. When they're laughing at you, when you're carried off into captivity, they're going to say, why would God do that to this temple that he used to dwell in? Because my people followed other gods. It was a promise and a warning. It was an if-then promise. So let's look at, at just... Three verses here that'll give us an idea of what's required. We're gonna have to finish this up next week and maybe the week after because I want to unpack every one of these, like what it means to humble yourself. So that we can see if you want to, if you're willing, if you think it's prudent, if you care about our nation, our future generations, your children, and what the country they're gonna live in, if it's enough for you and I to get serious about our relationship and see if we can begin this healing our land movement, this revival individually, and then watch God let it spread. Second Chronicles chapter seven, verse 12. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said to him, I have heard your prayers. I want to go back and read that prayer in chapter 6. And I have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. The first time God appeared to him was in chapter uh, 1, verse 7. And then, of course, ask what you want, and I just want wisdom. This prayer is found in chapter 6, verses 14 through 42. And you can look all this stuff up later if you want. But God is the one who says that I will uh, that I I choose this temple and this as Jerusalem is my dwelling place. We see that in chapter 6, verse 5 and 6. Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said to him, I have heard your prayers and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. Okay. Well, that should be good news. As a matter of fact, that should encourage us that God is going to dwell with his people, that we have an opportunity to meet with God, that we have this temple. Remember, God doesn't dwell in them like he dwells in us. We are now the sanctuaries and dwelling places of the Holy Spirit. We are the holy of holies because the Holy Spirit lives in us. In their economy, they had a place they had to go to, and they only met with God once a year on a day of atonement. We met with one priest at that time where he offered the sacrifice between the, the, the wings of the two cherubim on the bema seat. And God had decided to live among his people. It should be good news. I have chosen this city and I have chosen this temple that you have built to dwell. Oh, thank you. Tell us about the blessings you're going to bring our our nation, Lord. Tell us about how things are going to be wonderful. Tell us now, since we've honored you with this, all the great things you're going to do. 
It's not what he does at all. Verse 13. When I shut up the heavens and there's no rain. What? That's like Christmas time. I'm giving my dad this incredible gift that I've worked really hard for him. I, I know that you wanted this, this old classic car, and I spent all year long putting it together just like you like. Here is the gift for you. And his response is, okay, but when I disown you, when I punish you, when I make your life more difficult, wow, I don't understand. Well, that's because God understands human nature, and we don't. When I shut up heaven and there's no rain, God's action. And when I command the locust to devour the land, I command these swarms of locusts, which are devouring much of Africa now, they're coming in and destroying in a single day what it takes half the population of that area to eat in a year. When I command that to happen, or when I send pestilence among not the enemies and the pagans, but among my people. Wow. Now, what are we supposed to do when that happens? I mean, we built you this temple. We're trying to honor you in everything that we do. And then for some reason, you're purging us. For some reason, you're cutting off our dead branches. For some reason, you're, you're chastising us, and you only chastise those people you love. We have locusts that are going through, which causes hunger. We have shut up heaven, so there's no rain, so the crops can't grow, and the animals are dying. You're hitting us where it really hurts. Now you've sent a wasting disease or pestilence, maybe like the coronavirus or something of that nature, among your people, and all of this is your doing, God, he says in verse 13. What are we to do? Verse 14. Remember, verse 14 is only the second part of a statement. It's the second part of a sentence. We take it out of context, post it up there like a freestanding thought, and forget about where it's coming from. God is bringing judgment on his people and their land because of their sin. How in the world can we not look at America today and realize that's exactly what he's doing to us? Maybe what he's doing to some of our families. I mean, if, I mean Billy Graham said this a generation and a half, half ago, that if God does not judge America, he needs to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. We have done everything we could in, in the last 20 years. I mean, it was worse. I mean, it was bad prior to that, but in the last 20 years, everything we could to, to stick our fist as a nation in the face of God and say, we will not follow your laws. Everything it seems like he calls an abomination, we add civil rights to it. This is the way we're going to be. It's what we're going to do, and, and we don't really care. And the church now is so afraid to take a stand because we'll be called racist or we'll be called homophobes or we'll be called deplorables or something of that nature that we just get smaller and smaller and smaller and weaker and weaker and weaker until the darkness takes over. It's a spiritual battle. Why wouldn't God judge us? And the scripture says that the judgment comes first to the house of God, to those people who know right from wrong. God promises judgment on his people if they worship something else. Like what? We don't worship an idol. We don't worship Buddha. We don't have some graven image. Sure we do. We park him in our garage. 
We pay 30-year mortgages on them. We save as much money as we can because you know, we want to live well and when we get older and you know, we bought into the whole American dream. I did too, that more is better. Opulence is better. Greed is better. And where's faith? Where's faith? It's what we've done as a nation. I mean, pretty much what we've done as a church. When I shut up heaven and there is no rain or commanded the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, and we're looking around going, why? I don't understand. Why is this happening? Well, what do, how can we turn this around? How can we stop this from go- going on? How can you heal our land and forgive our sin? Singular. That is Second Chronicles 7.14. But you have to understand it in context. Really simple. Here's the antidote. If, this is an if-then promise. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. We read those like that's easy. Then, then, if then promise, I will hear from heaven and forgive their sins and heal their lands. No if, no then. You do the if, God promises to do the then. The power is in our hands. If the If we want our nation healed, if we want our families healed, if we want our own spiritual lives healed, we do the if, and we're not talking about we, we're talking about me and you. And if I do it and Carol does it, then Carol and I come together, we got two. And then if Tammy does it, we got three. And that's how movements and revivals and great awakenings take place. They never take place by capitulating to the dark side because you don't want the dark side to persecute you. Christ promises us persecution. It comes with the territory. Let's look at this verse. The if-then promise, in order for the if to happen, or the if must occur first for the then to happen, and there are many of these in Scripture, and again, I've shared dozens of, of, with him over the years. I don't want to digress on that now. But if you want the promise, you meet the condition. It's not if I meet the promise, God won't give me the condition. It doesn't work that way. If you trust the Lord with all your heart, with all your heart, so much so that you don't rely on your own understanding. You're not leaning for support in your own, on your own understanding. And whatever happens, good or bad, in all your ways, whatever you do, you acknowledge him, then he will direct your paths. Lord, I don't know what you want me to do with my life. <laughs> so simple. It's really. Do the first, the ifs, he'll direct your paths. Lord, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't, I don't know what to do. Well, okay, well, if you lay yourself down as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto the Lord, which is your reasonable service? and not be conformed to the image of this world, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, then you will know the perfect will of God. Do you remember that? It's us. It's us. It's right there. He set this table for us and says, eat. That's all we have to do. Same thing here. If my people, my people, you and I, my people, chosen from all generations, chosen from all nations, chosen from every socioeconomic group out there, chosen from every race, chosen from every affiliation. If my people, 
that my people don't have to make up the majority of a nation, don't have to make up the majority of a group, but they are the most important demographic in a nation. You are. You are. You know, Nancy Pelosi cannot, cannot get God to remove his hand of judgment on our nation. Not going to happen. You can't legislate it in. You can't dictate it. You can't force rules that people are going to follow. We've seen that this last week. It's not going to happen. The reality is that it's only you and me called by his name. You and I are the most powerful people in our nation right now because we have direct access to God. We may not have direct access to Washington, who forms these crazy laws, but we have direct access to God, who decides who's going to be king and governor and who's not, who decides what nations to raise up and what nations to bring down, and we have his ear. We have bold access to the throne of glory. We have an advocate, the Lord Jesus, who constantly pleads our case before him. When you understand the importance of you, and your prayer life, and your life of sanctification for the health and future of your children and grandchildren, it should change everything. Justice and Steffi just had little Darcy born. And I told Karen, I said, gosh, I would hate, I would hate to be, it's probably what my parents said about me, you know, living in the time that I did. I would hate to be someone just as in Steffi's age right now with a newborn because look how chaotic things are. Well, what a defeatist attitude. What an incredible, no, I mean, there's a mandate here. Then I could take it seriously. I could do this for the safety and sanctity of my own grandchildren, for little Darcy or, or Lincoln or, or Maddie or, or whoever. And I, I could get on my knees and do what I need to be doing rather than treating Christianity like a hobby and live and live like I'm called to live. I mean, if we won't do it for us, let's do it for them. Why don't you turn to John 11? We're going to be jumping in there in just a second. But I want to show you, John 11 talks about bearing fruit, but I want to show you in the Sermon on the Mount the kind of fruit that my people are supposed to bear. Here's what he says. This is what the Lord Jesus says about you and me. This is our calling. This is our position. This is who we are. You are. Present tense, not you will be, not, you, not that you once were, but you are right now the definitive article, not a, but the salt of the earth. You, makes it very personal, you, Steve, are not kind of like salt like everybody, no, you are the, just you, just accountable to me and your life, you are the salt of the earth. The preserving aspect of salt, the savoring, flavoring aspect of salt, the medicinal part of salt. I am, you are, these people, that, the small group that exists in a nation that can turn God's hand of judgment away. We are the salt of the earth. Well, so, I don't really care about that because you know, I just want to do what I want to do. I want to make money. I want to you know, have a good time. I want to dress the latest styles. I want to do all the stuff that the world wants to do. I don't want to be salt. Okay. 
But if the salt loses its flavor, becomes lukewarm, apathetic, or worldly, it turns into sand. You ever think about that? The difference between beach sand and salt is the taste. But if all of a sudden the flavor is gone, beach sand and salt look almost identical. Like gravel in your mouth. It's worth nothing. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is good for nothing. Nothing. I called you to bear fruit. And if you don't bear fruit, my father comes by and snips that branch off and throws it in the ground and it burns and is withered because the only purpose for you and I is to bear fruit. Every activity we're involved in, our marriages, our raising our kids, our jobs, our relationship with others, the whole purpose of all of that is to bear fruit. And if we have these kind of activities that don't bear his fruit, that don't honor his name, then the father goes, that's just wasting sap and wasting time, and we're just going to cut those things off so that the branches who are abiding in him will bear more fruit. You are the salt of the earth, but the salt loses its flavors. How shall it be seasoned? It is good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. That if you refuse to bear fruit, he, the Father, takes it away. And then if you don't abide, then those branches are taken off and withered and later on burned. It works exactly the same way in our own lives. God gave us a job, but our job is in order to make money, that's just a byproduct of our job. Our job is to emulate Christ in whatever community he places us in. But if me talking about Christ means I'm not going to get a promotion, I'd rather have the money than bear the fruit. See the difference? And so we end up having this dichotomy where Christianity becomes a hobby, that I'm, I'm really Jesus-oriented on Sunday, but Monday through Friday, man, that's work. That's secular. That's totally different. Spiritual side, secular side. It's not what God says. Everything is spiritual. Everything is spiritual because we're to bear fruit wherever we go. Continuing. You are present tense, the definite article, light of the world. The world here is cosmos. It's not talking about the physical world. It's talking about the organization of the world, the world system. You are the light of this dark world fallen, satanic system. That's, you're the light shining in darkness. So much so that a city on a hill cannot be hidden because of that light. If a city is on a hill and the light is shining, everybody knows where it's at right now. Nor do they take a light and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. We know that logically. Therefore, you, let your light shine before men. Christian men, no, the, the implication here is lost people. Let your light shine before men that they, the men, might see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Well, we have grown up with this attitude that, you know, we don't want to go out there and engage the culture. We don't want to go out there and share Christ in the workplace or with our neighbors. We just want them to leave us alone so we can come in here and sing our songs and pat each other on the back and, and have a good time together because that's our hobby. It doesn't penetrate every area of our life. We come here for a club meeting, but out there, oh, that's a hostile world. Out there, there's a battle going on. Out there, we could be hurt. Yes, 
Everyone who desires to live godly in Christ will suffer persecution, and not by saved people, by the lost people. If I desire not to live godly in Christ, then my unsaved friends won't bother me at all because I'm just like them and my light isn't shining. I've got all these unsaved friends, and you know I'm really good buddies with them, and we do a lot of stuff together, and, and I'm their best friend. Well, how could that possibly be unless you keep your mouth shut and share nothing with them about their future fate in hell. True? And we've missed all that because the church doesn't, pro- I haven't proclaimed that and lived that enough. But we're running out of time. In John chapter 15, you will notice Jesus talks about the vine and the branches. And we've discussed all of that. I am the vine, my father's the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that he that bears fruit, he prunes. And that may bear more fruit. And we go on through this. And one of the things we forget about studying this is what it says in verse number 18. Verse number 18 changes everything. Oh, I'm a vine. I'm abiding. I'm bearing fruit. What kind of fruit is that? I don't know. It's just fruit. Love, peace, joy. Okay, but it's also righteousness, and it's also uh, bearing his light. It's also sharing other people about Christ. It's also making disciples of all nations. It's also all of that. Yeah, yeah, but that, you know, that, that's going to bring persecution. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a promise. It's what we signed up for when we gave our life to Christ. Look at what he says, verse 15. If, or since, or because, the cosmos, the world, the evil world system hates you. Now the word hate here is active ill will and conduct. It's a persecuting spirit. It's not like going, you know what? When I was in ninth grade, there was this girl that just really embarrassed me in front of all my friends. I'll never forget that. You know what? I've hated her all these years. Uh, when's the last time you saw her? Well, when you graduated ninth grade, I moved somewhere else. She was still, I don't know what happened to her, but I just hate her. It's not that kind of hate. This is active ill will. This is I hate them, and I'm going to call them on the phone and tell them about it. I hate them. I'm going to do everything I can to persecute them. There's an active, constant persecution that's taking place. If the, the world system hates you, then you should know, gnosko, know by experience, that it hated me before it hated you. Listen, if you're going through persecution, okay. Jesus says, hey, I went through persecution, and they hated me before they hated you. I lost my friends before you're losing your friends. I had no place to call my home in case you lose your home. I, I just, I had nothing. When I died on the cross, I didn't have any coins. I didn't, I didn't have, I didn't, I didn't leave anything behind. All I had was some garment that they took and divided up or, or they gambled for and And I don't have anything. That's my life. And if they do that to you for being me to them, understand that you're not alone because they hated me before they hated you. Verse 19. If you were of the world, and the world of means it's ek. It means out of, from, or having your origin in. If you were of the world, if you're of the world's evil system, if you belong to Satan, if you're deceived by the, by the enemy, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. It would love you. The word here is filio. Any, anyone who desires to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 
Jesus says, if you are a friend of the world, if you're out of the world, the world will be your friend. They'll pat you on the back. They'll invite you to the parties. They'll give you the raises and promotions. They'll do everything they can to bless you within a domain in which they control. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Be your friend. But because you're not of the world, well, why not? Because I chose you out of the world. I selected you. I chose you for myself, and I'm giving favor to the one I chose. Because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Well, the world doesn't hate me. Ah, why not? I don't know. I don't really tell anybody about Jesus. I don't really get involved in any conversations that could make people look bad about me. I want to make sure that my presence on social media is always real positive. And, and if I post something and someone says something negative about it, well, I take that post down because you know, I just want everybody to love me. I want the world to love me. I want the world to be my friend. That's how the church has been most all my life. I mean, in 1973, we legalized abortion. And for about 10 years, the church took a stand against that. Nobody talks about it anymore. Now if somebody decides to make abortion an issue they want the church to rally around, we call them radicals. I don't want to do that. We just want to have our praise bands, and we just want to you know, have our potluck dinners, and we just want to live our own life here and, and be a friend of the world because we want the bounty and the good stuff that the world gives us. But the scripture says, if we're not of this world, because God chose us out of this world and he is our king, then the world will hate us like it hated him. Unpleasant. Nobody likes that. I don't like that. But that's what he says. I know, but it doesn't seem fair. I mean, I, I, I didn't sign up for this. I thought it was just love, love, love in my best life now. I mean, I don't understand. Can't I live my life in my holy little huddle and quiet solitude and contemplation bothering nobody? And won't they just leave me alone? I won't bother them if they won't bother me. Don't ask, don't tell. Let's pretend like this doesn't exist. No. They're, they're not going to do that because it may seem unfair to you, but it doesn't seem unfair to them because their job is to attack and persecute you. Their job is to destroy the light because John, Jesus says in John chapter 3, I should have put it on here, that the light or the darkness hates the light because the light exposes the evil deeds of darkness. How do you expose those? By being light. Remember, it's a spiritual battle. And our Lord didn't think it was, uh, it was unfair the way it's happening. Verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant, this is a doulos, is not greater than his master. If they, and this is the negative part, if they persecuted me, they will also in the same manner persecute you. Is it always so negative? No, because you'll find believers out there. You'll find people that will encourage you. If, now on the positive side, if they keep my words, they'll keep yours also. We're not alone in this. There are hundreds and thousands and millions of Christians worldwide that will bond together with us as one cohesive body of Christ. But are you the kind of believer that somebody in a foreign country facing physical persecution could trust? Could you show them your battle scars and brand marks of Christ as they show you theirs?
And then we wonder why over there, tens of thousands of people get saved. But in North America, in Anglo-Saxon world, it's just a handful. When is the last time you led someone to Christ? When is the last time you even shared the gospel with somebody? I mean, I'm shamed myself because it's so much easier to teach what we should be doing than it is to actually do what we should be doing. Amen? If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. But did they persecute Jesus? Yes, that's a promise. You might as well accept it or quit calling yourself a Christian because it's coming. It's coming. So our choice is either to live like Christ and face what's promised to come or hide our lamp under a basket hoping no one will see it, and it's a choice that we need to make. But only one of those choices leads to personal revival, and only one of those choices could lead to some sort of great awakening. And if I'm a father, I'm a grandfather. I have 13 grandkids, and I fear for what this world will be like when I'm gone. I mean, I'm 65 years old, and I'm the most healthy guy in the world. I'm probably not going to live forever, 10, 15, 20 years, who knows. But the reality is, if I really cared about my, ki- my grandkids, I mean, if I really cared about them, I would make changes in my life right now to be absolutely sold out to the Lord Jesus Christ, to be able to pray in such a way that I could be one of that remnant that'll maybe change this world and heal our land so my grandkids, who I swear I love more than anything, would be able to have a better life than what their future holds now. But if I refuse to do that, the indictment's on me, is it not? It's on me. Well, I guess you really don't love them because you're not willing to commit to, well, no, I just, I just love what I do more. Not revival. There's no great awakening. Jesus, of course, wanted us to know that the battle is spiritual. It's not about all the issues that we hear about on Fox News. You know what I did yesterday? I decided um, we have the TV kind of low on all the time in the house, and it's always on Fox News. So every hour, somebody else wants to drum up drama. You ever notice that? Guy, you know, guy ends his show by saying, this is what's going on in the nation. Back to you. Then a new show. Dun-dun. Let me tell you what's going on in the nation. But I just heard that every hour for the last six hours. I, I did something strange. I turned on K-Love and just started listening to some Christian music. It changes your whole attitude. I don't want to hear this stuff anymore. I mean, it, 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 we need to be discerning and we need to know, but it will absolutely crush your spirit, will it not? I want to hear something uplifting. I want to hear about how wondrous God is. I want to hear about the fact that, that he loves us and controls us and, and has a desire for me to have a deeper relationship with him. This is a spiritual battle we're going through, and we got to get ready. Got to put on our spiritual armor. Got to prepare for it. Instead of wasting our life on Facebook and playing video games and, and just walking around mindlessly, there's no time for that. We should have been in boot camp months ago, but none of us, me especially, saw this coming so quickly. Verse 21, but these things they will do to you, all this persecution for my name's sake. Why? Because they do not know him who sent me. The word know here is not gnosko. It's to know cognitively, that they don't know, 1492. They don't, they don't know about me. They really don't know who I am. It's like, I know Donald Trump. I don't know him like Ivanka Trump knows him. She knows him gnosko. I know him this no. 
that I don't even know him. And if you think about that, Jesus is saying that the very people who crucified him and persecuted the religious establishment and persecuted his disciples didn't even know the God they claim to serve. Is that not shocking? And of course, the Ephesians passage. Do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, against the dark against the rulers of darkness in this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. That's who our fight is against. Not Democrats or, or Republicans or government. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's about the demonic powers here. And so what are we supposed to do? We'll take up the full armor of God. When's the last time you did that? Wake up in the morning, read those passages, spiritually put on your armor. We do that so that we may be able to withstand the evil day which is coming and already here and having done all to stand. If my people who are called by my name, called by my name. Now here's the great divider of people. It's not just everybody. It's not just people who claim to be Christians. There's not even people who are Christians. I mean, you have Christians that are carnal. You have Christians that are spiritual. You have Christians that are, I hate to keep using the graph. You have Christians who are 10 You have Christians that are twos. You've been a two. I've been a two. And I've been a ten. And so we got these Christians on this entire continuum. So when it talks about being called by my name, it it means more than just your position in Christ. I mean, are we called by his name? And if we are called by his name, what are we called to? What did God redeem me for? What did God redeem you for? John chapter 15 tells us he redeemed us for no other reason than to bear his fruit. And our job is to stay connected to the vine so every bit of energy, every bit of substance, all the nutrients we get come from the vine. Our job is just to bear fruit that the vine produces. But in our culture, he designed us to make a lot of money and to buy a lot of things because I like to make a lot of money. I want to buy a lot of things. I mean, that just, that just makes me feel better. Or I want to be an influencer. And I want to influence people, have a lot of followers. Well, how many followers do you have on Facebook or Instagram or TikTok or whatever it is? Oh, I have, um, you know, 100,000 people following me on Facebook. Well, what are you telling them? What, what, are they, what are you influencing them about? Oh, I just put up memes and stupid videos and, you know, kind of make funny things. Or, or I'm an influencer and I, and I show people I put makeup in the morning. So all these people don't want to look like me because I'm so pretty. They'll follow me where I put up makeup every morning. So I'm influencing them to put on makeup. I mean, do you realize how ridiculous that is? If we have followers, then we're influencing them for something, and it has to be something godly. Why would we influence them to do something ungodly or worldly so that the lost world will like us, click, will like us, which makes us an enemy of God? You know what I mean? Well, how about something positive? I want to have a a family, a lot of kids, a lot of grandkids. Nothing wrong with that. But God didn't call us to have children. He opens and closes the womb, and our life can't be just focused in the children about just getting them up and out and healthy. Our job is to teach this next generation to, to be able to go farther with Christ than we have. I remember Vodi Bauckham. saw a video of him, I don't know how many years ago, 
talking about his desire for his own children, is to go so far with Christ that when he's done, that they'll be able to stand on his shoulders and go even further in the gospel than he does. That's, that's living for him. Or the Spock one, the live long and prosper. So we have a choice to make. Am I called by his name or not called by his name? Not positionally. We're not talking about being saved. We're talking about now that you are saved, what are you doing with that? What kind of faith prepper are you becoming? Am I living out my calling? Am I giving honor to the, to the name I bear, his name? Am I a true bearer of his name? I've been kind of amazed with Donald Trump and his family. Um, so Don, I didn't know much about him. I just knew Donald Trump, you know. We've known about him out there for 20, 30 years. And then, of course, he was on a television show, You're Fired. I don't know what the show was called. You know, he'd fire everybody. I didn't know about his sons, and I didn't know about his daughters. I think I saw a picture of them. And then he came into the White House, and he surrounded himself with people that he can trust. And we find out that his sons and his sons-in-law and his daughter are some of his closest advisors because they honor his name. I mean, when, when you hear, you know, Ivanka Trump, I mean, she and Donald are, are not in conflict. They basically have the same mind. They do the same thing. They're focused on the same goal. When you see one, you kind of see the other. Is it that way with me and Christ? Is it that way with you and Christ? When people see you, do they see God? Or, or are we somehow saying we're called by his name, but do things contrary to what his name means? The, word, the Hebrew word for called, of course, means to summon and invite or be chosen. But the question is, to what? What kind of relationship are we being chosen to? What does it mean to be called by the name of God? Here's a, a definition. Statement that was made by a preacher, which is so true. In biblical times... A name was more than a personal means of identification. Names meant something. I don't know if they mean that much today. People just kind of name people stuff over movie stars or it sounds like a cool name and all that kind of stuff. And you can kind of search your name and see what it means. My name means crowned one, uh, Stephen, for Stephanus in the Greek. Karen's name means pure. Um, you know, we all know what our name means, and we kind of lost it here. And we would name somebody a name, like crowned one, not because my mom expected me to be a king. It was just the fact she liked the name Stephen, and later on we found out what it means. Make sense? Back in the biblical times, it was totally different. That when you name somebody something, sometimes it became their destiny. Sometimes it became a calling, like a prophetic name. Names convey authority. They showed character and issued promise. They even displayed a certain fate and or destiny. Human names carry a great meaning, but God's name encompasses his whole identity. It has expressed his power and his omnipresence. Those called by his name live to reflect that relationship. If my people, those people are saved people, People under the covenant. In the Old Testament time, they were under God's covenant. In the New Testament time, were redeemed by the blood of Christ. If my people who reflect the relationship of being called by God's name, who are committed enough to focus on the things that truly matter to heal our land and protect our children and our grandchildren from anarchy and chaos that may or may not come, 
If my people who are called by my name will meet some if conditions, then God promises to fulfill the then promise. And here they are. Close with this. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves. Talk about that next week. And pray, not arrow prayers, haphazard prayers. There's an implied intensity in prayer here that comes after humbling yourself, recognizing the need for prayers. And you will seek a relationship with him, not just as blessings, but seek his face, his face where he speaks and I listened. I remember us talking about how to hear God's voice and how to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I mean, the Lord has been moving us in this direction for the last couple of years. I just had no idea it would happen this quick. And then repentance with actions, turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sins, and heal their lands. Four requirements. Humble themselves. Pray. Seek my face. Turn from their wicked ways. This is what we're called to do. And unfortunately, it is simple, but it's hard. It is hard. Humbling yourself. I think he puts that one first because once you move beyond humbling yourself, which is like the eradication of pride in your life, then everything else seems easier. It's the key to a revival. And the key to a revival is it's essential for a great awakening. And once you have a great awakening, there's a societal change in the nation or the community in which we live, which means our kids will live in a better environment, which means we will leave this world in a better place than it was, at least locally, when we got here, that we will emulate Christ in everywhere that we go. But there's so much more to discover about each of these four requirements that we'll have to talk about that next week. Amen? Let me pray.